I'm Dean Murdoch, and this is Amazing Places. My guest today is Mitchell Reardon, Senior Planner at Happy City. Happy City, for those who aren't familiar, is an urban planning and design consultancy that uses an evidence-based approach to creating well-being through healthier, happier, and more inclusive communities. Hi, Mitchell. Hi, Dean. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks so much for spending some time with us. I'm sure a lot of folks are going to be familiar with the Happy City, but why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do? Happy City, the consultancy, uh, is built out of Happy City, the book, by our founder and principal, Charles Montgomery. Um, he released the book back in 2013, and it got a pretty good reception. He was invited to do all sorts of talks and things to get people excited around the world, and, and they would get excited, but he would notice that if he came back a couple of years later, that excitement hadn't really translated into meaningful change. And so he and, and a few of the people who had been involved really wanted to do something a little bit deeper. And we were really fortunate to have um, some opportunities um, to start to, to carry that forward. And the result has been this consultancy, which has been growing for the last few years. And so we focus on um, urban planning, design, and housing related issues and cover everything from um, the, the key processes that go into it, such as engagement and public life studies, over to the actual like design pieces themselves and some of the planning work. And in some, our aims, as you said at the beginning, are to create healthier, happier, and more inclusive communities in British Columbia and around the world. I'm totally nerding out about this conversation. These are exactly the kinds of things I spend so much of my professional life and, and just my time in the community thinking about and feeling really excited about the work that you get involved in and, and hearing about the experiences that you've been involved in. <laughs> yeah, I'm also uh, nerding out on this. I, I love these type of conversations and just being able to do this type of work. I know one of the major things that we hear a lot about, particularly as we're in this COVID period, is about the use of our streets and public spaces. And I know that that's an important area for, for the happy cities and, and likely for, for you in particular. Could you tell me a little bit about the use of, of those, those spaces and the kind of work that you get involved in? We recognize that streets are part of the public realm, and yet they're often used for um, a single purpose or, or a pretty limited range of purposes, which is largely um, moving motorists. Um, and, and so a lot of what we try and do at a really fundamental level is reconceptualize how we understand streets to think of them as public space. And this was something that started long before COVID, but that has been thrown into stark relief through COVID. Um, so we've recognized that um, we need to make space for people to be able to move, um, for essential work, for their health and for their well-being. Um, and we also know that these are becoming spaces that, uh, that are important for socializing and interacting. In recent months, um, as you've likely seen in many places, perhaps Victoria and, and Metro Vancouver, we've seen all sorts of initiatives around uh, opening streets to people and diminishing or removing cars from that equation. Um, and so we've been fortunate to uh, have been reached out to by a number of municipalities and are um, doing a major project in New Westminster called the Streets for People in 2020 initiative, as well as some other smaller interesting work uh, throughout Metro Vancouver. You know, having thought about this and worked with this for a number of years, what, what has really become clear, I guess a few things have become clear through, through COVID, but one of them has been just how important um, public space is for many people. And I think that value has really been elevated um, through COVID. 
but we're also understanding that its distribution and use isn't uh, always equitable. And so determining how we can support that use among populations who have not necessarily had the same access previously and who may still not feel particularly comfortable in it is really important as well. It's been fascinating to see this, this sort of openness to trying new things. Um, municipal governments who often take uh, a fairly long time to make decisions and um, turn those decisions into action are uh, in many ways feeling, I think, a sense of freedom to try new things and to, to test them out. Um, and if they work and are validated by the feedback they get from the, the people who are using them uh, and perhaps not using them, they may become permanent. But in other cases, they're, they're just tests to, to see what we can do moving forward. In another uh, episode of the podcast, I had a chat with New Westminster City Councillor Patrick Johnstone, and he said the kind of words of wisdom he left with us is be bold. And um, that's increasingly, as you said, something that I'm hearing from local elected officials, um, that there's a willingness to, to take things on that they may be were somewhat reluctant or apprehensive to try in the past. A lot of those things are emerging as sort of pilot projects, uh, but as we're seeing uh, even here in, in Victoria, uh, some of those pilots around the use of the creation of patio spaces seem to be moving towards a more permanent state, or at least that their temporary use will be extended for a much longer period. What kinds of things are you finding that uh, that local governments want to try that they maybe weren't willing to to dip their toe into before? So we've had conversations uh, and are working with a number of uh, municipalities and, and other organizations like BIAs and merchant groups. And what we're really seeing from municipalities is a willingness to to try things that they've wanted to do for a long time but have never um, found the capacity to go through the full formal process with or have not had the political support um, to, to do so and this is combined with a really strong interest in partnerships where typically you know you have this sort of um, client um, consultant relationship right now trying to move so quickly it needs to be a partnership that's essential to the, the smooth flowing of these projects. Um, so that's been a bit of a shift and one that we have found really helpful. Um, it lets us as consultants understand what's going on within the municipalities and within their, their uh, teams. And at the same time, lets us ensure that what we're delivering is, is cost effective and exactly what is needed within that moment. You know, we're seeing nearly all municipalities in Metro Vancouver are, are trying new things. Um, some of them are just getting out there and saying, okay, we want to get some patio space or we would like to allocate um, a certain share of our road space to, to more human-centered uses, whereas others have a, a really strong foundation, uh, a policy-based foundation on which they're, they're building this work. And the City of New Westminster is certainly in that latter category. Um, what they're doing for the Streets for People in 2020 initiative is built off their um, transportation master plan, off their council goals, off their climate emergency response policy, and much more. And this is a really important piece for us in that, um, as you have likely heard, there's a fair amount of um, critical analysis of um, these types of initiatives. And on the street, we're hearing people say, you know, why is this happening? And why did you choose this street? And in some places, that can be really difficult to answer right now because they've just basically gone out and um, it feels at least like in some places they've, they've um, gone out to take the easiest streets to fulfill a certain number of kilometers or a certain share. 
Whereas in places like New West that are taking this policy-based approach, um, they're building on this policy. So you can say, well, this street was selected because it was already um, selected to be a calm street or one that has a more um, human mobility focused approach moving forward. And we're using this time now to test these ideas to see if they work. And that's been a really effective approach from our perspective. These are ideas that maybe have been on the back burner for communities for a long time. Really, what we're seeing with this pandemic is it's created a window of opportunity, born out of unfortunate circumstances, to, to try those things, to respond to the needs of, uh, of residents, to find places where they can be together uh, in a safe setting, where often, particularly folks who may live in a condo or an apartment, just don't have the space uh, to be able to gather with friends. Yeah, I mean, COVID has really underlined that we're social creatures. And everything that we're hearing from public health experts is that long gatherings inside are the likeliest space for transmission. And I think in turn, this is leading to cases where there's this high recognition of the value of public space in helping to address this. Back in May, I think it was May 15th, we had just gone into phase two. So lockdown had just ended. And um, Happy City does a lot of public life studies um, in the region and elsewhere. Um, but among other locations, we've previously studied um, Jim Deva Plaza. And so once lockdown ended, um, my colleague Cherry Asami and I um, went out immediately to conduct a public life study at Jim Deva Plaza to see how it was being used and who was using it. Um, so the first thing we noticed was that it was quite well populated. Um, it's a really well designed plaza with a number of opportunities for safe clustering and uh, uh, people to interact, but not have like a, a overly high concentration of people. And what really struck us at Jim Deva that day was how many seniors and people with mobility devices were were using the space and evidence shows us that um, these groups are particularly at risk of social isolation. Um, and that seemed to be an elevated risk through, through COVID. So to see this space being used by what you might describe as vulnerable populations um, was, was really good. And um, there was one fellow, an older man um, named Teddy, who saw us um, with our computers doing this public life study. We were trying to be sort of, you know, innocuous and we don't want to be, uh, seen to be observing people, but of course, that is not possible to fully avoid. But he came up with his tablet and said like, I just, I see you using your computers. Can you show me how to connect to the internet? And he might've needed help connecting to the internet, but he might've also just been looking for that social interaction. And so this was just like one small example of how public space is playing a really important role in, in uh, meeting people's needs today. The other side to that is that we need to make sure that these spaces are, are places where a lot of people can feel welcome. The demonstrations around Black Lives Matter and the killing of George Floyd um, have really underlined, as well as others, have really underlined how the use of our space is not equitable, that um, certain people can feel very comfortable in these spaces. Certain people like me, as, as a white man, uh, feel very comfortable in these spaces, whereas a lot of others, particularly Black, Indigenous, and people of color, um, are more likely to be hassled or even just feel less like they're able to use these spaces. And so as we think about how public space can be, can be used in this time, it's critical that we start to adjust 
the way these spaces are managed, controlled, and even just like understanding what co-creation looks like to ensure that a broader range of voices are part of that decision-making process is really vital to adjust pandemic recovery. What are some of the measures that you can put in place as part of the design of these spaces that achieve a greater amount of equity and, and ensure that there's access for, for everyone who, who would like to use them? That's a really good question, Dean. And at Happy City, I feel like design is about 20% of our work and it's the process that leads into it that um, we put a huge amount of effort into. Um, so first and foremost, ensuring that you have uh, a process, a rigorous process in place, even during COVID is, is really important to ensuring that you're reaching the groups that need it most. Um, so while things have to happen quickly, that doesn't mean that engagement and you know, public life studies or other ways of measuring the success of these programs um, should be uh, discounted. In fact, this is the time we need them even more. And I think the work in New West, uh, we're doing focused engagement, we're doing on-site engagement, we're doing public life studies, pop-up events, um, all of this within a safe COVID setting helps to underline that it doesn't take a tremendous amount of time to do this work. And it is really important. It might take a bit more of your staff time, but this kind of thing just can't be ignored right now. So when we do this kind of work, um, especially with the short-term stuff that we're seeing right now, um, we, we work to identify who's in the neighborhood, whose needs need to be met and um, what aspirations they have. And we certainly aren't experts in every neighborhood that we go into. Rather, we like to think of ourselves a little bit like detectives. We're trying to understand the, the place and understand what the issues actually are. And the other ways that we really do that are by talking to people. And through that, we get a better understanding of who needs to be involved in these discussions and how we can um, best meet them where they're at to ensure they have the space to participate. Because different, different people and, and um, people with different backgrounds have different ways that they need to be engaged. So we try to, to take that into account right from the beginning and even identifying locations that should be uh, up for transformation. And from there, establishing what that might look like, um, getting it in quickly, making space for feedback once it's there, because this is a test. We're testing things. We can change them, uh, but we also need to be open to changing them. So you can say it's a test, and then if you don't make the space for those changes, it, it really doesn't seem that way to a lot of folks. So they might be a little bit skeptical the next time you call something a test. So making sure you're able to do those changes, measuring how things are going before, after, and during are really critical. And then evaluating the results together with people who are using it. it it's really critical. These pieces all sort of lead into um, the design of these spaces. And admittedly, the design of these spaces right now is, is rather low key. Um, budgets are tight and um, we're trying to ensure that a lot of spaces are a little more, bit more people friendly. Um, so using things like chalk and having people come to the street to help create what that could look like, they're just small ways to elevate the status of these spaces. The process that leads into the design is critical from Happy City's perspective. You can see some of the, the process and thoughts that we've put into this um, through an initiative called Bring Back Main Street that is being led by the Canadian Urban Institute with an array of partners from across the country. And as part of that project, we've uh, created the Rapid Placemaking to Bring Back Main Street Toolkit. And that's available free online from the bringbackmainstreet.ca website. I was curious about how it, how it plays out when you have to move quickly and what impact that has on decisions you make about the space design and some of the pieces that you put in place. 
even if things are created with a, a sort of temporary intention, that's not to suggest that the, in, the intent to create that space doesn't become more permanent. Um, you, you look at New York City's decision to close Times Square, and initially they were doing that by putting out folding lawn chairs. So it, it really did look like this was just going to be a very tentative step. Uh, and then the users who experienced it were so enamored with what they experienced that they called for the city to make it permanent. Are people uh, approaching this as with the intent that it's going to be become their more permanent space? My sense is that there is aspiration in um, in establishing long-term reallocation of street space. I, I think the uh, restaurants, bars, and cafes, um, the ones we've spoken to at least, are. Uh, very positive to the idea of being able to have larger patio spaces for much more of the year. And I think that intent is quite positive. It's really important to communicate that that is an aspiration and it's great if that fits into um, established policy that the city already has. The critical piece is evaluating what is happening and ensuring that the data you're collecting or the measurements you're taking are reflected in what you decide to do in the long term. We really understand that for a lot of uh, bars, restaurants, and cafes, having that extra patio space is a huge asset. Um, but we also know that, that taking away certain parking spaces, particularly parking spaces for people with disabilities, is, is really a no-go. Um, so even when we're doing things that I think a lot of urbanists just consider to be positive things, we need to be really careful about what those impacts are. When you approach people, with uh, and share with them the idea of, of what you're up to. What kind of reaction do you get from them? Widely varying reactions. <laughs> um, we, we get a lot of positive reactions. So um, with a lot of the work we've been doing, um, we are doing interaction with people. Um, we have really rigorous COVID protocols in place to minimize any risk of uh, transmission. And yeah, we are speaking with a lot of people. And um, on the street, I would say, but like the majority of the reaction we get is positive. We tend to hear that things are, are, are going quite well, uh, that people are liking the way these spaces are used. Um, but on the other hand, we, we see other reactions and feedback takes many forms. Um, we were uh, doing a site tour of Streets for People in New West uh, earlier this summer. And um, we we're on one of the streets just taking a break in the shade. And um, a gentleman turned the corner in his car, got out of his car, just kicked the barricade and then got back in and drove away. He didn't know we were working on this project, at least to my knowledge. Um, and this just was like one form of feedback. And it also underlines how engagement takes many forms. Um, we need to be able to uh, adapt, but also that there are certain feelings that may, they may just be more of an emotional response rather than something that is, is say to their actual detriment or benefit. Generally, the response we get is good, and it varies from we really like this to um, local businesses um, responding like we need this to survive. And another project we're working on right now is the brewery well-being study. Um, here in Vancouver, we're working with a number of breweries to assess how their patios are influencing uh, the well-being of their patrons, as well as um, how patrons choose to behave in these spaces. So are they choosing to sit inside as they typically would with most of these patios, most of these breweries not having patios typically or would they prefer to be outside the results overwhelmingly indicate that people would prefer to be outside um, it suggests they feel more comfortable there 
and it is having a positive effect on their well-being to be able to be outside through all of this. I think uh, this period has exposed a lot of converts to the cause, that there are people who are, are true believers in, in the kind of work that, that you get involved in um, creating these spaces with the intention of, of supporting well-being, even if they're not coming at it from a perspective of well-being, or maybe that's not foremost in their mind. There seems to be a lot of broad support for, for these kinds of initiatives. But you do come across those guys who kick the barricade, uh, driving their truck, uh, who are going to be uh, uh, opponents, at least on the face of it, opponents to, to what's underway. How do you approach them? What are the conversations you have with those people? And, and what are the concerns that lead them to lash out in frustration and kick a barricade? It's certainly something that um, we're, we're aware of now. And I think, yes, you're right. Broadly, we are seeing uh, a lot of support of people who are kind of recognizing where the value from these things can come from. I love when well, the work we do goes well beyond the kind of typical urbanist circles and goes to the actual, to the people who are using them and the people on the street. And those are my favorite conversations. Um, um, but yeah, you will find some folks who are opposed to it. And um, I think you rightly note that they are mostly guys and uh, trending to be a little bit older, but not all older. We first and foremost try to listen and um, see where their concerns are coming from. Typically, it's not about the program themselves. Um, they may be frustrated with um, the lack of input that you were able to have. They may have pre-existing notions about these uh, activities or um, about the people who use them. Pre-COVID, pre there was already um, some a certain motorist demographic that have a fair amount of animosity towards cyclists or people who ride bikes, um, that has not gone away. And um, so we still continue to see that. There's also people who are saying like, well, I see kids out on the street now. And you're like, yes, exactly. That is what we're hoping to see, um, who feel that that is not a child's place. And I, I think in that regard, we, we do try to emphasize that a lot of people are being negatively affected in different ways. And, um, Children are among those who've had to deal with all sorts of uncertainty and things that you're not expecting any child to have to deal with. Um, so to make life a little bit better for them is really important. Um, it's also one of the ways that we tend to try and show the positive pieces that are coming about this. That you know, we talk about the folks who, who don't have it as well as the person who might be able to afford a very nice truck, the need for having a little bit more space about around these things. The other side that I think really works well for Happy City is that very few people inherently oppose happiness or well-being. Um, so even if you oppose what the intervention looks like or how it's manifested itself, we, we tend to have, we, we experience at least an openness to what we are speaking about because you're curious when we talk about happiness in cities. Um, and that at least opens the door for conversation rather than starting it with like, what do you think of bike lanes or something along those lines. Um, when we talk about happiness and well-being, most people want that, and while their conceptions of it can be different, um, there are often a lot of things in common there. I'd love to hear about the reaction you get from municipalities, from staff, from council, decision makers. After you've had these conversations, when you've got a design concept and you come back and say, this is what we heard, this is what people would like us to try, what kind of response do you get? When we're doing this work, especially because we're not tied to a specific place the way a city staff member might be. We're always thinking about the relationships that might emerge from the work we're doing, recognizing that the people who live there and the people who work there are going to be there a lot longer than us. 
So we try to have interactions and be feeding connections through um, throughout the process. So we, we try not to wait until the end of the process to deliver our results to um, our municipal client, for instance. Um, so usually they're, they're somewhat aware of what is going on uh, and what is trying to be highlighted before we come with the final results. Um, and that the critical piece there is the relationship building component. Um, you have people who care about their neighborhoods. They, they might care about them in different ways, but that passion isn't something that should be inherently discounted. It's something that is, in my mind, inherently positive, and we just need to, to understand how that energy can be used for positive outcomes. Um, and so we don't tend to get a, a tremendous amount of surprise with most of what we're suggesting. Um, there can be times where people are a little disappointed that something that they really liked, um, uh, or like city staff can be a little bit disappointed where something they really like um, isn't, isn't landing well in that location. And of course they have the final say on how that's gonna go, but they tend to be receptive to what, what we're doing and what we're hearing. The other side, I guess, and perhaps the more tricky side is, is still we see this fixation with what the outcome might be and wanting something kind of fancy and shiny and um, less willingness to um, invest in the process and understanding the importance of such process to getting results that are going to be meaningful for the people who live in these places and the people who we are all serving, really. Um, so that's the part we're still really trying to work on and that's not um, only a local issue, it's something we deal with wherever we work, I think. Um, but really helping to underline why, why we need to get these processes right, why that's, in my mind, much more important than getting a beautiful outcome. From my experience, designing beautiful things these days isn't really that hard. You will have to make sure that they work for the people and working, working for the people, that's the part that takes a lot of time. If there's a community out there considering making some changes, modeling themselves after some of the great examples that you've been involved in and that they've seen in, in other jurisdictions, what do you want them to consider when, when they're approaching this? Who might use the space? Who might not use the space right now but should be involved in these conversations? Who's already doing really good things in your community that you might not even know about? Take the time to figure out who's already doing these things um, and who's got the, the, their views out in the world around these topics. Pick locations that are going to, to serve populations that need this most. We've seen through COVID, just through, I think, the haste of, of getting streets down, that a lot of interventions, not specific to Metro Vancouver, um, but a lot of interventions are working really well um, for people who already had a pretty good share of green space and like decent quality of life. And it's those neighborhoods with less access to it, the people who live there that we really need to be serving. Critical to take that into account. And then right now, like, be considering this a test. And if you're doing a test or an experiment, um, think about all the steps that need to go into that. So making sure that you are measuring what is happening. And there's all sorts of ways that Happy City tends to do this, but our public life studies consist primarily of um, uh, behavior observation of how people are either lingering or moving through the space, as well as well-being intercepts, where we're asking very short subjective well-being uh, surveys on the spot. These aren't opinion-based, it's just how you feel in the moment. Um, and we find these to be really critical. And then the 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 as you're sort of thinking about this process, ensure that you have budget available to make changes after the fact. Um, because it is a test and you need to be prepared for what those changes might look like, whether that is making it permanent, whether that is making adjustments and keeping it a test, or whether that's removing it. Um, so being agile and open to these things is really critical, I think prior to COVID, but it's just been reinforced through all of this. 
we understand that engaging people and especially engaging an array of people, including um, seldom heard people in populations, isn't easy at any time and is extra hard right now through COVID. So, but there's a number of approaches that um, can be taken and, and it is really a multi-pronged uh, approach that is critical to reaching an array of voices. So we see a lot of cities doing online surveys um, and putting them out through social media and that kind of thing. And that's, that's an important step, um, but it's one that uh, has limitations. You're gonna get the people who are extra motivated to find that link and then go to the website and fill out the survey. Um, there are also just many people who have limited access or experience uh, with using the internet. And so there's a number of groups that are just excluded automatically um, through that approach. Um, so combining that with some more interpersonal approaches is really important. Um, interpersonal approaches that we find to be helpful are uh, phone calls, finding out who we need to speak with, taking the time to speak with them, finding out who else we should speak with. Uh, that, that that's a really critical piece um, to reaching certain certain people who might not be able to, to join us in other ways. Um, being on site, it's not the easiest thing and there's a lot of reluctance around it um, through COVID, but with Streets for People and all open streets programs, it, it's important that you're getting that face-to-face -face, uh, feedback or making it possible, at least in certain settings. Allowing for some of the deeper conversation that we primarily do through in-person activities is also key. So um, at Happy City, um, well-being workshops are a fundamental piece of our work and they fit into so many different projects. That's a really key way of going beyond just like yes, no, and sort of high level answers. We can't have 30, 40 people together in a room right now. So we've had to tailor these to digital settings. And um, for the more digital savvy folks, this is pretty straightforward. Um, but we're also reaching um, folks who may be less inclined to do the digital work. And, so basically having a more fine-grained approach that is centered on the people that are using it and all built around uh, empathy, built around how people might feel while participating, um, understanding that in person, some people might be uncomfortable with being in that setting, understanding that digitally, some people might feel uncomfortable with the tools we're using, but also nervous about flagging that. Um, so just taking the time to really understand what people are feeling and making sure that we are meeting them where they're at, however we're reaching them. I so admire the work of, uh, that you do um, to help make life better for folks, um, making people happier. What, of all of the things you've been involved in, what has made you the happiest? Knowing that what we are doing is, doing, is positive um, and getting that feedback in the many forms that it takes one super small example was in my tactical urbanism work, um, I've built dozens of what we call benchlets that are little um, benches with gardens on each side and a bench across the middle, all made of pallets. They can be built in about four hours and it's you know 95% reusable material. Um, one of the first I put out was near my um, old home and um, you know I saw people sitting on it, but a couple of weeks later I saw a backrest that somebody had added and you're like yes like this is of value and they are taking it and making it their own that kind of thing i love um working re reaching the end of a project with um with seldom heard or harder to reach communities or marginalized communities who are communities that are marginalized from um, planning processes more typically reaching the end of that process and having people feel that they have been heard and are starting to see 
their, their ideas and aspirations reflected back in that work, that is really important. And that one's double-sided because you go in and in some sense, you want people to talk to them and you need to offer some sense of hope, but you have to balance that with what you are able to offer. And it's a fine line and one that's hard to, to, to work with, but we become invested in these communities. And so to see that it is working for them after we leave, that, that's something that always holds deep, deep meaning for me. Mitchell Reardon is a senior planner at The Happy City, making those healthier, happier, and more inclusive communities. Mitchell, thank you so much to you and your colleagues for the incredible work that you're a part of to, to make our, our lives better. I can tell you from personal experience and from the folks that I talk to how much this work means to them. And uh, my thanks to you and all the folks at The Happy City for, for doing such amazing work. Thank you very much, Dean. I appreciate that. Thanks for spending the time today. And uh, I really appreciate hearing some of these fantastic examples. It was a pleasure speaking. This has been Amazing Places. My name is Dean Murdoch. Thanks so much for listening.